Hi, I'm Sam Slater from Calibre, and today I've been joined by Conjul Gala, co-manager of the Hermes Global Emerging Markets Mid Equity Fund. Hi, Conjul. Uh, hi, Sam. Thank you very much for uh, having me on the on the podcast. Yeah. Um, emerging markets obviously encompass a lot of countries and a lot of different regions. So, for the benefit of our listeners, could we perhaps split it into three with Asia, Latin America, and EMEA, or it's uh, emerging Europe and the Middle East and Africa. Um, starting with Asia, it represents about two-thirds of the companies in your portfolio at the moment. How come this area seems to throw up more opportunities? Yeah, that's uh, an interesting question, an interesting way to begin and think about emerging markets generally. So, you know, back in the 90s, uh, the composition of emerging markets were, was quite different. Uh, you did not have uh, large economies from Asia as part of the benchmark, whereas Russia, South Africa, Turkey, Latin America, these were very large, meaningful uh, components of uh, uh, the benchmark. And hence, a lot of opportunities probably came from those countries. However, since the last, uh, I would say, 20 odd years, uh, a lot of things have changed. Uh, the first thing, if you think about Asia, uh, it's a heavily populated region of the world. Uh, and it's not just uh, population for the sake of it. There is a very large middle class population in Asia, which you don't find uh, that much in EMEA or LATAM. Uh, and when you have a large middle class, the consumption expenditure uh, generally is on a rising scale uh, because middle class, these are educated, literate uh, people, uh, not le- not much leveraged balance sheets, uh, and they are aspirers, right? So they like to work hard. They like to come out of the lower income brackets. And hence, you know, you see uh, a rising scale of consumption. So that has been a major driver for Asia. The second uh, aspect, which is also very interesting, is um, Asian economies have a long history of uh, investments in uh, physical infrastructure infrastructure, and also digital infrastructure recently. Uh, and when infrastructure spending happens, there is efficiency, there is productivity, and those economies can grow a lot faster than those economies who are not prioritizing infrastructure. And that's why Asia has become uh, a very relevant uh, part of the benchmark and our investment universe. And finally, it's a reform. Uh, again, this region, Asian region, has gone through turbulent times in the past. I mean, if you recollect back in the 90s, early 90s, we had the Asian financial crisis. In 1991, India had an external uh, crisis where, after which they opened up their economies. Uh, China also opened up their economy uh, back in the 60s. Uh, and then recently, last seven, eight years, we've been hearing about China deleveraging, SOE reform. So this region never lets a crisis go waste, you know, and there is always reform that happens. And again, that also adds to the of the overall uh, region and hence opportunities to come out from, from here. And in contrast, if you look at EMEA and LATAM, while these regions do have some very strong uh, capabilities, especially in terms of resources, you know, you have a lot of oil in the Middle East, in Russia uh, as well, you have a lot of gas. Uh, in South Africa, you have a lot of precious metals. 
uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, you have uh, metal, which is very important. Brazil has got a lot of iron ore and other metals. You have Chile, you have Peru known for copper. But the problem is, uh, you know, as the world moves ahead in a low carbon economy, the resource intensiveness is going to decline. And unfortunately for LATAM and for EMEA, they haven't really benefited or made very good use of the uh, upside that they had many years from rising commodity prices. But now, unfortunately, we are in a different world. These two sets of regions have not really invested that much in digital infrastructure or physical infrastructure. They don't have a sizable middle-class population. Inequality is very high. So you either have rich or the poor. You don't have anybody in between. And the pace of reforms has been very sluggish over there. So that's why you know we tend to find more opportunities in Asia as opposed to uh, LATAM or EMEA. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, just as a little follow-up on that one, um, the Latin American countries, my understanding was that over the past few years, for the first time, four out of five or something have business-friendly leaders. Do you think that now might be the time when Latin America and the MEA actually respond to this and realize that they are behind in infrastructure, etc. And that over the next, say, decade, we could see them trying to make a comeback from that point of view? I mean, that was the hope. Um, it did happen. Uh, some reforms did get passed in Argentina, for instance, but then the reform minded. Uh, uh, president uh, lost the elections and now, now and Argentina is, is the leftists who were governing the country before him and made a mess out of the country and now again Argentina is uh, is defaulting. Uh, so yes, I mean occasionally you do have uh, these economies swing. It's like a pendulum, right? It swings from left to the right and right to the left. You know, so it's again a kind of a similar story there. Uh, we've seen in Brazil, again, from the time of uh, Lula and Dilma to Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro is supposedly more reform-minded, pro-business. And we've seen some reform last year. Uh, but whether the pace of reform will continue going forward or not in Brazil is, again, another question. Because they have a lot of reform to be done. Uh, and these reforms are not going to be easy, uh, both from uh, politically uh, political standpoint and also from an implementation execution standpoint. And whether the uh, population in Brazil is uh, has the appetite to digest those difficult reforms, because reforms are now never easy. It's like a bitter pill, swallowing a bitter pill. Uh, so again, we'll have to see whether the pace of reforms uh, continue in uh, in this part of the world. And then finally, Mexico. Again, this country did uh, pursue some reforms, but after AMLO was uh, elected, uh, the focus of the administration is uh, more not so much on reform, but more on anti-corruption, uh, a number of contracts which were initially awarded have been cancelled. So policy uncertainty is actually quite high in Mexico. And as a result, the country and the economy and its markets have been suffering even before the virus uh, kicked in. So yes, while a few countries do have uh, have seen pendulum swing to the right, 
but they have swung back to the left in no time and the economies are kind of sluggish i would say you know so i i fail to see uh, much optimism um beyond what we have already experienced last few years unless there is a decisive move by some of these uh, administrators that we have to reform and we have to go on the path of reform but otherwise um, i see a, a difficult uh, trajectory for these economies and their potential growth rate will probably remain lower than the developed market growth rate which is not why one wants to be in emerging markets you want to be in em because it gives you better growth than dm but unfortunately for some of these economies because of lack of reform lack of investments the potential growth rate is going to be a lot lower than what it has been in the past so presumably in those two those two areas of latin america and the mea it's really down to very specific stock selection for the exceptions to the rule then those those companies that you can find that are going to be able to grow Yes uh, so stock selection is uh, very important anywhere uh, not just EMEA or LATAM but in EMEA and LATAM the top down asset allocation is actually even more important because uh, these economies are quite vulnerable so one has to uh, precisely understand when is the time to uh, go overweight some of these countries or remain underweight or neutral because these these are high beta economies and there will be a time like in 2016 you, we saw uh, brazil for instance rally significantly you know on back of uh, bottoming of commodity prices uh, and also developments in the political landscape uh, so i think those things one have to one has to bear in mind that although these economies are probably not going to be uh, strategic uh from an investment perspective uh but there will be moments in between when these economies do give you an extra uh return but then the way one way we focus on uh, these things is we don't nobody can really time these things perfectly so rather the focus should be on as you rightly said stock selection so uh, identify a few handful of good quality companies that are uh, thriving even in a difficult environment adding to their capabilities becoming more competitive and those are those companies that are benefiting from some structural drivers and we do see uh, a few structural drivers emerging in latam or emea uh, healthcare is one area e-commerce is another one fintech is another one um so there will be uh, some pockets of opportunities that uh, will open up uh, are opening up uh, in these areas where one can invest uh, rather than you know investing in say a commodity company or a miner you know which could be extremely cyclical and uh, risky at times and an asian fund manager that we spoke to recently said that europe's changing attitude towards china was more of a worry for him than the us trade wars um would you agree with that that this whole talk about bringing manufacturing back home to developed markets does that worry you in any way so i am not too worried about uh, europe and china i'm more worried about us this attitude to china rather than europe uh the reason is very simple um while china is dependent 
on Europe for exports to some extent, but the dependency on US is a lot higher. It's not just exports, but it's also technology. Uh, so to that to that extent, US China is nice worries me and how uh, China could can come out of uh, the issues that the US keeps throwing at them. Like just recently, they added uh, one of their uh, major, like in, in, in addition to Huawei, they added Fiber Home, which is another company involved in 5G infrastructure rollout in China. They added this company to their entity list, uh, making it difficult for Fiber Home to access technology from Americans. Uh, and that uh, has a risk on China's 5G rollout uh, unless they're able to find good quality alternatives from Taiwan or Korea or Japan, which they might be able to, but quality is always uh, a question mark and American semiconductor technology is proven uh, and, uh, and they are much higher efficiency and much higher quality uh, products. Uh, so having said that, moving on to the question that you asked. So yeah, I'm not super worried about Europe's changing attitude to China. Uh, China has been investing in Europe uh, uh, a lot. Uh, they have poured in tens of billions of dollars in Europe by acquiring companies, by investing in infrastructure. Uh, so to that extent, uh, the, China is uh, not unwelcome in, uh, in Europe, uh, unlike the U.S., um, and uh, there are some differences that are appearing in within the European Union about China. Some countries are obviously worried about China. Some countries less less worried about China. But that doesn't really worry us that much because no matter what Europe does or what any other country in the world does, the competitiveness of China in manufacturing at scale at a reasonable price is not going to go away anytime soon. Because China has invested in world-class infrastructure, as I mentioned earlier, right? Uh, also, China has a very large population base. So people don't manufacture in China only for exports. They manufacture in China for the domestic population as well. So to that extent, uh, you know, China gives a very large economies of scale. So yes, on the margins, a few companies here and there will shift some of their lines away from China into, say, a Vietnam or in India or in US or Europe. But nobody is going to shift everything lock, stock, and barrel. You know, so to that extent, uh, I'm not that worried about uh, some companies, MNCs, deciding to bring manufacturing back home because, uh, in reality, nobody can fold their operations completely from China. The dependency on Chinese components, uh, Chinese manufacturing, will remain because that's the, the most efficient. Uh, place in the world to manufacture a number of products. And China itself, uh, the strategy has changed, you know, over the last several years. I'm sure you must be aware about aware of Made in China 2025 strategy, uh, which has been uh, quite controversial with President Trump. Nevertheless, China is going to go ahead. They have already announced trillions of dollars of investments in that space. China wants to move up the value chain. It's as simple as that. They don't want to be... Uh, known as manufacturers of toys for the world, for instance. Uh, they would be very happy, you know, to shift some of those lower value-added manufacturing to other parts of the world, while they want to focus more on uh, AI, cloud computing, data center, data analytics, 
semiconductors, you know, they want to be in, on the cutting edge. Obviously, it will take time, but that's the direction in which China is traveling. They are not uh, looking to increase their share of manufacturing, especially low-end manufacturing is something they're not very keen on anyway. And you've mentioned uh, a little earlier in the podcast about infrastructure, growing middle classes, healthcare and technology, which are themes that you've had within the portfolio. Have any of them been impacted more positively or negatively by the pandemic or has it actually thrown up another theme that you're perhaps considering? Yeah, so healthcare uh, generally has been resilient, uh, especially the importance of quality healthcare is now uh, quite evident. The role of technology in um, anything rather, you know, it's just not just delivering healthcare, but the way enterprises conduct their businesses in the future, the role of digital technology, online technology, automation, internet of things, everything is becoming more and more important as a, a mitigation for the disruption that we are seeing and also to make sure that the business continues regardless of the external environment. Uh, and also role of technology in how households, uh, people like you and me, how they behave, uh, their, their, their preferences, etc. So technology has a very important role to play in all of those things. We are seeing a few new areas also emerging. For instance, insurance. We are hearing from a number of insurers in emerging markets that the attitude of uh, individuals towards health insurance and life insurance has changed. Uh, insurance was never uh, considered as mandatory uh, by retail investors in uh, emerging markets, but the uh, pandemic has opened their eyes and they have understood the importance of having insurance. Uh, and there is a huge gap, you know, a huge protection gap in emerging markets. And that's a huge opportunity for financial services companies to tap into and monetize over the next uh, many years. So, yeah, we are seeing uh, the traditional areas like healthcare, technology, they are holding up quite well. Uh, and new areas like insurance also emerging as potential winners from the uh, pandemic. And just finally, please, what's your general outlook for emerging market equities over the next five years or so? I would like to first thank you for asking me that question uh, and especially for asking me five years, not the next six months, uh, <laughs> because uh, six months is something which is uh, very, very difficult. But yes, over the next three to five years, uh, I'm quite personally, I'm very positive on the uh, outlook for emerging markets. One should not classify all markets that are classified by MSCI as emerging markets uh, because now not all of these markets are emerging. Uh, a number of these markets are actually moving in the opposite direction. For instance, Turkey or South Africa or Argentina, Mexico. And for the reasons I mentioned earlier, you know, uh, not having a sizable middle class population or not having invested enough in digital or physical infrastructure or not, inve or not spending time on reforms. Uh, some of these economies have uh, much uh, few, I would say fewer prospects for increasing their potential growth rate in the future and reducing their vulnerabilities, macroeconomic vulnerabilities. So yeah, if you exclude some of these economies, then the outlook for rest of EM, uh, for instance, China, India, Taiwan, parts of Southeast Asia, I think those uh, countries do stand out uh, from a longer term perspective. 
Also, I would like to highlight that there are a number of interesting changes that are happening on the ground across EM. Uh, these changes are happening in areas like technology, for instance, 5G rollouts are happening uh, at a decent pace in many parts of EM. And this will also help or enable a number of other advanced technologies to be deployed like AI or cloud computing, etc. Uh, we are seeing a, a very strong move towards digitization and Internet of Things. Outside of technology, financial penetration remains quite low. I already spoke about insurance, but generally availability of uh, banking services, uh, mortgages, credit cards, personal loans, etc. is quite low. Penetration is quite low across EM. Uh, so we see potential for rising financial inclusion, healthcare, another area which I spoke about briefly earlier. Uh, is also quite interesting. Uh, we see uh, consumer expenditure, premiumization, those long-running themes also quite relevant in the future. And infrastructure logistics uh, are also quite important. So I would say there is a lot of stuff happening on the ground across EM where uh, there is good value to be made uh, and good opportunity for, for capital appreciation over a three to five year period. That was fascinating. Thank you very much indeed for all that information. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. If you'd like to find out more about the Hermes Global Emerging Markets Mid-Equity Fund, please go to fundcaliber.com and please subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please note that these are unprecedented times and markets can react very quickly to news. The views expressed are at the time of recording and could change. Please remember we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or to sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at the time of your listening.